Thanks for tuning in to Season 2 and the 12th episode of our Jazz Backstory Podcast. I'm thinking back to our first season and a jazz vocabulary word that keeps coming around. The word is gig. The quest for gigs is what drives Episode 12 and 13 titled Jazz Life on the Road. The pun is intended. In case you're starting with this episode... I am Monk Rowe, director of the Phileas Jazz Archive at Hamilton College, and a gigging musician. If we exclude COVID statistics, which I am happy to do, almost everyone who has a job goes to work. The time they go and return, the method of getting there, and what is expected each day varies from one situation to another. Musicians, in particular, need to go where the gigs are. After multiple local appearances, they eventually have to hit the road and get out of town. In-town gigs are a luxury. You have to take roads to get there, but they hardly qualify as road gigs. Last weekend, I played a Saturday night in a fine Utica, New York hotel. I left home an hour before start time and was home an hour after the music ended. With travel to and from, set up and tear down, and a stop for pizza on the return trip, The whole gig took five hours, and there was even a ramp to make the load in easier and comped drinks at the bar. I take for granted how uncomplicated most of my gigs are. Some local gigs are more challenging. Bassist and vocalist Nikki Peratt described the logistics of a typical New York City gig, and I quote, I don't know how many gigs I've done in Midtown where you really have to call someone. I need help. Sometimes I have to take a PA system, particularly if they want me to sing and play the whole night. So you've got a PA, an acoustic bass, and an amplifier, and the gig is upstairs at the Crown Plaza on 42nd Street. How do you do this? Put your hazard lights on, panic, get help, get your stuff inside, make sure someone is watching it, go and try to park. It's a nightmare. You have to be organized. The more organization and the more time you give yourself, the better off you'll be. You have to know Midtown Manhattan to survive it. It's rough. The hardest part. It's not the playing and singing and smiling on those corporate gigs. All it is is show up, play, sing and smile. Do what the gig requires. You're back into the music. But the other stuff, wow, that's a challenge. End quote. This rather long intro brings us to the topic at hand, serious road stories. Our previous episode on swing was timely, as the most challenging travails were experienced by big band road warriors during the swing era, as they gigged from one coast to the other. First up, our friend guitarist Bucky Pizzarelli, whose first road experience occurred with the Vaughn Monroe Orchestra when he was still in his teens. In addition to the band bus anecdote, we get to learn what a typical gig entailed in the mid-1940s. Vaughn Monroe almost gave up the band, thinking that he was going to be drafted, but he didn't. Mm. So he said, let's get the band back together again. And there were a lot of seven or eight chairs open for anybody. So uh, my trumpet friend called me and says, come on come with the band. So I jumped on a bus and 
played Binghamton, uh, oh, Scranton, Binghamton, and Rochester. Uh -huh. <laughs> and went back to school the following Monday. <laughs> oh, that's neat. Yeah. Yeah. But the funny thing was my father gave me 15 bucks out of the cash register, and I came back with change. Because <laughs> <laughs> oh, you were buying meals and the whole thing. Well, you know, that was the era of the dime tip and the blue plate special, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you couldn't spend any money. You know, everything was a buck. The room but was did a you re do you recall thinking of that as really inexpensive? No, I didn't. Because right? everything was relative, $15 right? was a lot of money. Right. You know, three $5 bills. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I came home with 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 change and a uh -huh. steady job. Yeah, <laughs> so I graduated the week after. That's neat. And I went on the road with Vaughn, and we played about uh, ten weeks of theaters, just a week at a time. You know, Cleveland, Baltimore, Boston, places like that, Pittsburgh. And I got to see the, I got a geography lesson at the mm -hmm. same time. Uh huh. And. Uh, it was very thrilling for me. You're in the book that uh, I was reading about you. There's a short bit about uh, fire on your bus. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How did that come about? I, you know, we had the we had the brakes fixed yeah. on the bus, and somehow, in hot weather, if you use them too soon, they they, they explode or not explode, they expand, oh. and. Uh, we were in uh, West Virginia, and we were going up and down and up again, and all of a sudden, uh, one of the trumpet players in the back seat said, hey, there's flames, flames coming out of the back seat. And the bus said, you're crazy. And, oh, he said, yeah. We stopped the bus, and sure enough, we were playing cards. We all jumped off the bus in our T-shirts, and... The bus burned down in about 15 minutes, right down to uh, less, uh, just the four wheels, you know. <laughs> and we had a gig that day, so we waited for a Greyhound to come in. We jumped on a Greyhound and went to the theater in, uh, wheel in uh, oh, I can't think of the name of it, not, not Wheeling, some little town, and they had no backstage, so the band had to go right down the center aisle, the way we looked like. <laughs> no unif uniforms were gone. Uh -huh. uh, but uh, luckily, instruments were saved. Uh, they went in another truck. I see. I was going to ask you, what, what um, when you say we played a theater, Yeah. Um, what exactly does that mean? The, well, uh, the band used to play theaters. Uh, like the, similar to the Paramount, for instance. Okay. Now they, they had uh, they play an opening number, then they bring out the singer, then they bring out a juggler or a comedian, and uh, we play a couple more numbers, and uh, then they put the picture on it. But you do that four or five times a day. Ah, did they have a screen that came down or? No, the band came out of the pit. Ah. First, they would show the news, a newsreel. And that's when the band would assemble in the pit. As the newsreel was finishing, the pit would come up, and you'd see the newsreel and the band, you know, briefly. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, they go through the act. So sometimes we play for a big singer, like you know, some some other singer, like uh, Dinah Shore, okay. Frank Sinatra. Someone who wasn't in the band, but you, no, you would yeah. play their charts. Yeah. Yeah. And. Uh, 
we had an animal act too. And, you know, it was funny, funny situation. A juggler, you know. You learned to do just about everything. Yeah, and you had to play that show, you know. But <laughs> when you do that for ten weeks, <laughs> it's, it gets a little crazy. Did you ever have any uh, train wrecks? Buck was the guy who brought all the animals over from Africa. You know, oh my it? God! <laughs> that was I a no-no thing. I see. And and once uh, down to Philadelphia. When, the, when he came out uh, on one skate, there was a cat came up from the pit. And he saw the cat, and he chased the cat right down the center aisle. <laughs> right, he didn't care about either the act or nothing. <laughs> That's funny. And then once, the, and then uh, during that one tour with this, it was a chimp, really. Uh, the saxophone players would put candy on a string, so as he came out, he would s scoop it up and eat it. Then when they had the strength, they would pull it, and he wouldn't get it, so he'd miss it. And he jumped on the whole sack section trying to get that candy. It behooves us to remember that these traveling musicians were young men, and even though a gig is a gig, they were often looking for ways to spice up the day-to-day, -day repetitive grind of playing shows. The road tales I've heard from these fellows remind me of a verse from the tomb, Kansas City, slightly altered here. I might take a bus, I might take a plane, if we have to take a car we'll get there just the same. Cars, buses, and trains were the usual travel mode, and you'll recall saxophonist Lanny Morgan's story of his one-nighter with a Maynard Ferguson band, New York to Chicago and back. Here, Lanny describes a typical car trip in detail. But the driving was terrible. You know, I've set out at like 8 o'clock at night from, uh, we used to leave from Junior's or Charlie's Tavern in 50, at 52nd and Broadway to go to Chicago or, or even Pittsburgh or someplace. Uh, and it would be snowing so hard you couldn't see somebody standing mm -hmm. as close to me as you are uh, and have to drive all that way. Uh, and usually we'd, we'd try and catch the... We'd leave late so we could catch the day sheet, which meant uh, you'd check in about 6 in the morning, and you'd grab a few hours sleep, and then you'd leave right after the gig and come back to, to New York to save money. You mean you, you drove to Chicago for a one-nighter? Oh, yeah, several times. Uh, we did that quite a few times, Play, uh, Chicago and, and places <laughs> like that. And, and, and probably the, uh, the throughway system was the roads were a long way from where they are now. The throughways and the turnpikes were finished, but the interstates were not. And of course, we even though we got reimbursed for tolls, uh, it took time to stop and go through the toll booths all the time. And when you're on a roll, you know, I could I couldn't drink during that period. I had to stay sober because driving <laughs> yeah. through a through a blizzard with these guys, it's. Uh, but you you just get on a roll and you want to go. It's kind of hypnotic, and I really shouldn't have done that, but. Uh, um, we, we would try these new interstates, and they were a drag because, because you'd uh, you'd take an interstate for oh, 100 miles, and you think, oh, this is wonderful. They were brand new roads and so forth. And then it would say end, end of interstate. Oh. 
there were no ro no decent roads. There were like a lot of two two lane highways, uh, backwoods gas stations where you were almost afraid to stop sometimes. Uh, we had a couple we had a couple carloads of kids follow us into a gas station in West Virginia once, and they had chains. You know they were gonna they were gonna get us good. Fortunately, our car was newer, and we got out of there fast. But oh man! But it was uh, there was a lot of that really. It was it was not uh, completely safe to to mm -hmm. be traveling, even with six guys in the car. Did you have a mixed, was that a mixed band? Yes. Black and white? Yeah. Did you ever have any trouble, well, you said down the... In well, we didn't have trouble, we just had to, uh, we couldn't stay at the same hotels. I remember Richmond, Virginia, uh, Jackie Byron and Rufus Jones were on the band and we had to take them to, uh, to a colored hotel and then we came back to ours and then when we, uh, of course they could eat there at their own hotel, but when we were traveling down south, uh, you had to go into a, like a diner and bring them something to go. And Chet Ferretti, who was uh, the lead trumpet player when I first joined the band, Italian and dark-skinned Italian, and I was like a Southern California beach boy at that time. Even in New York, I found the beach right away and got a tan as much as I could. They wouldn't serve us in a in a restaurant in uh, I think it was either Delaware or Maryland, Maryland down the coast from New York, uh, because they said we were too dark. And I said I had my license. I said, wait a minute. I said, look here, it says Caucasian. And uh, he said, I don't care what it says. He says, you ain't getting no food here. And it was a drive because we were getting food for, for the rest of the guys in the car too, see. So, so we just had to, had to keep going until we found some more hospitable people. Lanny Morgan introduces the subject of race and the jazz life, which we will explore in subsequent episodes. Like Bucky, Lanny found work in the recording studios after the big bands faded. But being a California beach boy, he chose the L.A. studio scene. Tenor sax player Carmen Leggio fits the definition of a journeyman in the music world. He was a member of the sax section in bands led by Gene Krupa, Woody Herman, Thad Jones, and like Lanny Morgan, the Maynard Ferguson Orchestra. Carmen describes the challenge of fulfilling a basic human need during tours on the road. Terrible. Yeah, uh, you really never ate ate right. You always had to look for. Uh, I never ate right on the road. You know, mm -hmm. only I only ate right when I was with Gene Cooper for three years. Three years we did locations, and the money was very good with Gene. <coughs> then I lived much better. But yeah. when you're on one night or so on a bus like a Woody Herman or, or cars with Maynard Ferguson and so on, and the bus, uh, I'll tell you, when I was with Maynard, the payroll was 120 a week, uh -huh. okay, 1959. 120 a week, and then if you only did two nights, you, you got paid pro rata. So, you know, uh, so you had to eat all night, you had to pay for your hotel, you had to, you know, so you, you literally were not in good shape with that kind of thing, with the, with the road. It, it, it killed a lot of people. Mm -hmm. It hurt a lot of people. You, you eat on run, it was hamburgers or, or a couple of eggs, what, I mean, anything that could be affordable to you, yeah. you know. But uh, you never, can never really take care of yourself that, that mm -hmm. good, you know. And that's why guys used to get out of hand a little bit, you mm -hmm. know, and to, I don't, you know, just to forget about it. Right, yeah. It was not, one-nighters, big bands, it's not an easy life. Mm -hmm. Thad Jones, when I played with Thad Jones and Mel, it was much better. They, they, paid, they paid okay, had a good buzz, 
and uh, it was better. But when I was at Woody in 1964, we had a bus that had no heat in it, and we're going up to, to Detroit and, and Canada and so on, and, and, uh, and the money, a lot of times we would ask for an advance on our pay, and, and you couldn't get that because the money wasn't coming in properly and so on. I said, so you were starving. A lot, a lot of times you, you, you're really hungry all the time, you know. It was, wow. it was a hard life, a very hard life. It's jazz vocabulary time. We heard the term location gigs and one-nighters, and they mean just what they sound like. A band leader lands a gig in one place, a location, a hotel or club, for a week, maybe two. The band members get to stay in one place, sleep late, do their laundry, maybe a bit of sightseeing with their spouses if it's not too pricey. The one-nighter. Play the gig, pack up and return to your regular seat on the bus, and hope that the driver slept while you were playing. Clarinetist Kenny Deverne had a unique way with words, and his description of the day-to-day routine on the road with Ralph Flanagan explains why he never joined another big band. We did uh, 61 nighters in 90 days. We made the most amount of money any band had ever made on the road. I think it was... Uh, Whatever it was, I don't want to quote any figure I'm not sure of. And uh, all the guys would come up to me and say, Ooh, you know, wow, you have the big time, you know, big time I ass. I said, horrible. You know, it was awful out there. You know, shaving uh, on the bandstand before the gig. Wearing, I mean, it just wasn't... Tell me more why it was awful. Well, let's face it, maybe you're driving through Keokuk, Iowa, on the way to Ames. <laughs> or maybe it was Ames on the way to Keokuk. Anyway, uh, the most you might see was a Stewart driving, root beer, hot dogs. Now, you'd have that and ice cream. Mm-hmm. Back in the car, some more traveling. Get to this place, you're in your jeans and you're in, you know, and. and Sort of like the way I'm dressed now. <laughs> anyway, uh, well, it was hot. You know, cars didn't even have air conditioners in uh, yeah. 1953. Some did, but ours never did. And um, you'd get there at maybe 5, 6 o'clock, and you go, you know, you're right at the gig, at the ballroom. The bar is the ballroom. The ballroom is like on, on, on Highway 483. Midway between, you know, Chicago and Detroit. <laughs> and to shave, you had to plug in. There was one outlet by the bandstand. You plug that in, each guy would take a turn with his electric shaver shaving. Next. And then there was one, like, sink in back of the bandstand with cold water only and a naked light bulb hanging down and a cracked piece of a mirror. And that's where you washed up. And you put on a shirt, nylon shirts had just come out, short sleeve nylon shirts. And it was the summertime. Because you, know, you needed something you could wash out right away and hang up and dry. And cotton shirts just weren't it then, you know. I mean, you just could, you could do that, but mm-hmm. it wasn't really uh, practical. And so, you know, uh, then these shirts were hot. I'm telling you, when you closed up that collar and you put on a black bow tie, which you had to make yourself in those days, you know, you know little. And then you put that, that wool jacket on over you, you know, and your tuxedo pants, you were roasting. Mm. And you did four, you know, four sets, four hour sets. 
and then you packed it up the horns and folded up the book and put it on the pile and packed up your horns and then they put them on the on the on the truck and you got in the car and you rode let's say maybe 350 more miles and you got to with a gig maybe and you had to go through those towns at that time obeying the speed limit because they were all speed traps and if you went one mile over they grabbed you and you had to pay off you mm. see so all the drivers were aware of this you know and uh, a lot of times you almost got killed speeding on you know, you know on three lane the middle lane was for passing in either oh. direction you know going okay. through well i mean you know zooming along all of a sudden you hear oh, hold on hold on your ass fellas and you look up and you see two eight wheel eight, eight wheelers one on each side of you one going this way and the other one going that way and you and, they, and you're in the center oh the two of these guys i mean very frightening and a lot of guys got killed Mm. And those kind of uh, uh, precarious road uh, driving things at the end. And then you get into the, where the town you're going to go, you know, you left at about 11.30, 12, let's say. Maybe about 6.30, 7 o'clock in the morning, you rolled into the other, the other great um, town where, which boasted of a Milner Hotel, 375 or 275 a night, I forget which. And you couldn't check in, you see. All right. So you'd have to put your luggage, you know, in the bell captain would take your luggage. These are very cheap hotels. And then you'd walk around town. You'd have breakfast in one of those um, do drop-in places. <laughs> Maybe visit the local music store to see what kind of instruments they had, because good horns were still relatively easy to find, premium horns. Uh -huh. Of course, we don't have to any money, but if we needed it, we would, we would borrow whatever. And um, then when you checked in, maybe at 11, 12, or 1, you know, you may have gotten a haircut, whatever, anything to kill some time. And you slept till about 5 o'clock. And that's when, you know, had your wake-up call, you got dressed, you shaved, you showered, and you went down to the, the local buffet, uh, you still, well, cafeteria style, you know. Right. Right. Yeah. And you had uh, spaghetti or you had whatever, you know, depending on what part of the world you're in. <laughs> yeah. And uh, then you went to the gig, and that night you were able to stay over. But you left 9 o'clock the next day because, again, you had 350 miles to go. So, you know, you do that. Day after day. I was, yeah, it was really quite, quite hard. But, you know, and as a kid, you don't care about that. I think I made, uh, made 120, pay was $125 a week. Mm -hmm. I cleared $117.50. And I could save money. Yeah. Believe it or not, 1953. Because the room's... Two dollars yeah, weren't, weren't that expensive. Right, every other night was two seventy-five, yeah. or maybe three dollars, or maybe were we? Wow. Mm -hmm. Well, that experience may have put some perspective on things for you. I expected much more from, <laughs> from then on. I just got very, you know, I said, yeah. Ah, uh, well, I came home. Like I said, oh, guys, oh boy, they were all uh, starry-eyed. Thought I'd be stage struck. I said, what was it? It was the and worst, I said. You yeah. Know, plain and simple. The and worst. Kenny knew what he wanted and what he wouldn't tolerate. After this road travail, he avoided the touring bands and eked out a living as a soloist and leader of small combos. Air travel was rare for big bands in these days, too expensive, and ground transportation at the end of the trip would still be necessary. Gigs at military bases were one of the exceptions, and bassist Jimmy Lewis experienced his first plane trip as a member of the Count Basie Orchestra 
it proved interesting. I was glancing at your notes, and you had a story about flying oh. with Basie. <laughs> it's not <laughs> kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah you know, we uh, had some armor camps to do. So uh, we had to ride the armor planes, you know, one with two tails, you know, and that big thing in the middle, you know. So we got on one day, one day we got on this thing going down to a to one of the camps, and it was noisy. This thing was so noisy you couldn't hear. You know, now Bill Eckstein, all those guys used to riding, you know, but me, I was scared to death. You know, we all had on parachutes. Basically, had on parachutes. He's sitting right by the door. You know, so we get, <laughs> we were going to a to a Texas, Corpus Christi, Texas. So. The plane took off, got there, but before we got there, something happened. Just before we got ready to land, they couldn't get the landing gear down. So the guy kept punching back in the back. There was some long pole, and they couldn't get it down. So the man said, we're going to have to circle around and go up a little further and then come back around again. So they went around and uh, started back, you know, see if he could land, still couldn't get over. So one of the guys went over on the side and the base and right by the door, like in the door here, pull this big door over. Now we're flying up there. <laughs> so I said, what's this for, man? What are you doing? The guy said, well, see, we're trying to get a little more air in the plane. I said, air in the plane? I said, man, we don't need no more air. So he said, well, I'll tell you, he said, we have a little problem with the landing gear. And he said, oh, you, we might have to bail out. <laughs> and basically looked at me. <laughs> he, said, he said, what do you mean bail out? And so he had the pilot say, look, uh, are you going you, you gonna to be out too? The pilot said, no, sir, I got to stay with the plane. He said, you got to stay, well, I'm going to stay with you, he said. I'm going out with you. He said, because if I jump out and I pull the string and the chute don't open up, he said, man, I can't fly. I don't have any wings. <laughs> but, but everybody laughing. And so Billy teased me. They said, man, see, we're going to crash. Oh, believe me, I don't know what to do. And I'm running back and forth on down the <laughs> It's funny, you know, I've never been in a plane before anyway. So finally we land. Everybody sat there about 15 minutes before they got out of the plane. <laughs> quiet as a pee, boy, you hear them out. Quiet, you know. So that's why they started getting up one by one, taking off the parachute, taking the instruments and going outside, you know. Got outside, we had to play under some trees. We get out there, and they set up under these trees out there, hot sometimes. Oh man, the big, it looked like a big field. And people as far as you can see. As soon as they started playing, there were all these little scorpions out of the tree. Started to fall on down the banter. And it's fall into the bell of the horn, the guy dump it out, <laughs> keep playing. <laughs> I got me some string, tied all around the bottom of the pants leg, you know. I was in case it wrote crow up my leg. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> 
Well, oh, and so we finished when we finished the job. Uh, now we got to take this same plane and go to California. Ah! <laughs> 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 oh man! <laughs> so I get everybody. So me and one of the color, we walked out to the plane and looked in, you know, and we see all these uh, parachutes on the seats, you know, and. Cuz said, you know, that look like dead people, man. Said, we can't, uh, <laughs> said, we can't take that plane, can we? I said, no. So, so I see. I said, well, let's go tell Basie. We, we don't think we're gonna go on this one. So we went told Basie. Basie said, oh, I don't blame you. He said, but I got to stay with the band, and so uh, you go ahead and we, if you can get a train out, Miss, California. So. We did. We got a train. We got uh, to California three days later. Mm. Now, I think we missed one gig. Uh -huh. But we got to the gig and we played and everything. So we asked Bass, he said, how was your trip? He said, man, that was the worst trip I ever had. He oh. said, good thing you didn't come sick because somebody would have died. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone want to go on the road? The British author Chris Sheridan penned the nearly 1,400-page book, Count Basie, A Biodiscography, which includes the band's itinerary from October 31, 1936 to April 26, 1984, the day that Count Basie died. A look at their schedule in 1942 reveals an estimated total of 340 gigs, a mix of location jobs and one-nighters. Despite his exhaustive research, Mr. Sheridan had to occasionally resort to this type of entry. June 1st through 30th, untraceable one-nighters and theater tours. For days and nights on end, the Basie bus penned the Blue Goose, sans air conditioning and a bathroom, was a second home, a life not for the faint of heart. So why did they do it? What was the reward that justified this life on the road? We heard tenor player Billy Mitchell refer to it as a calling, and Jerry Dodgen declared, It's why I'm alive. They do it for that winning night on the bandstand where everything is in sync. The ensemble is playing as one. The rhythm section is in the pocket. The soloists are playing above their own individual abilities, and the audience becomes a participant in the joy. The musicians celebrate, even if briefly, getting paid to do something special that only a chosen few can do. For a while, they set aside the tedium and trials that brought them to that moment and revel in a feeling that can't be truly articulated. You can visit the Phileas Jazz Archive YouTube channel to view the full interviews, purchase our book Jazz Tales from Jazz Legends from Amazon.com. We'll stay on the road for our next episode and hear anecdotes from Ruth Brown, Al Gray, Joe Wilder, Sonny Igo, and Mona Hinton. See you on the flip side.